Hey now, before we begin today's show, we start again on a somber note as beautiful Bobby Eaton died Thursday at age 62. One half of the Midnight Express, Eaton wrestled over parts of five different decades. He was a staple of the NWA and Continental Wrestling Association, but became best known when he joined Mid-South Wrestling under Bill Watts and became the Midnight Express with Dennis Condry and Jim Cornette, of course, as his manager. They later went on to Jim Crockett Promotions and WCW, where their longtime feud with the Rock and Roll Express continued. Eaton also ended up teaming with Stan Lane as the Midnight Express that many people know and love in WCW, where they worked with all the other greats, including the Road Warriors, Samoan SWAT team, the new Fabulous Freedbirds, the Steiner Brothers, and many others. Eaton beat Arn Anderson one time for the WCW TV title and actually had a two of three falls match against Ric Flair at a Clash of Champions event. Those were the highlights of his singles career because he was primarily a tag team wrestler. He later joined the Dangerous Alliance under Paul E. Dangerously, where he feuded with Sting, Ricky Steamboat, and basically everyone else. Eric Bischoff ended up rehiring Eaton after Bill Watts left WCW, and he also made a couple random appearances in ECW before his full-time career ended. His last notable work was with the Blue Bloods, uh, where he teamed with William Regal. They fought the Nasty Boys, Harlem Heat, that whole new generation of WCW tag teams. And he did make uh, sporadic appearances in independent promotions up until 2015. But he did end his career, uh, Eaton, known as one of the nicest and most underrated wrestlers of all time. You couple that with his tag team success, and that is quite a legacy to leave behind, one that will definitely be remembered for decades to come. Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 196 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. Man, that 200th episode is quickly creeping upon us, but we're not there yet. We still got a couple more to go. On today's show, we are breaking down everything that happened Tuesday and Wednesday from NXT and AEW Dynamite. We have plenty to get into on today's show, including a love her or leave her match on NXT and of course the in-ring debut of Malachi Black on AEW Dynamite Homecoming with AEW returning to Daly's Place. They weren't gone for that long, uh, but right back to Daly's Place for a quick show before they head right back out on the road. So the Silver King is going to break all of that down for you coming up in a moment, but since it is of course, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, you know how we start these shows. We always remind you to take care of business for us because the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, folks, as you can tell, I am stumbling with my soundboard. It is all about one thing. It's all about the five. That's right. The Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about the five. So go ahead. Stop being marks for yourselves and... Go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King Adam Silverstein, Vintage Chris Vanini, and Getting Over by dropping a five-star rating and review for us on Apple Podcasts. Cannot stress how important those ratings and reviews are. Again, folks, I know how many of you listen to the show. I know how many ratings and reviews we have. The numbers aren't equal. They're not even close. So please take two minutes out of your life. 
go to Apple Podcasts and drop a rating and review. Let people know how much you love the show. Tell your friends and family about the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Help us with some big numbers as we celebrate that 200th episode in a couple of weeks. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. I will tell you, it has been a nice reprieve for the Silver King to not have like three wrestling pay-per-views and back-to-back-to-back weeks where we're doing all these extra shows. We've been doing two shows for a couple weeks and we're still going to be doing them for a couple more. So it's just really cool um, to be able to kind of relax a little bit as the end of the football offseason is kind of taking place because, man, once SummerSlam comes around, we're going to be right back after that with AEW All Out. That's not to mention TakeOver 36. We're going to have a ton of special episodes in a very short period of time, plus interviews and a ton of great content for you here. But for now, two episodes a week, talking WWE, AEW, and NXT. It's as simple as it gets, and I'm happy that you are all with me to break it all down. Now, before we get going with the individual shows here on this episode, I I wanted to give a little brief overview of NXT and AEW. NXT is coming off uh, two weeks on the Sci-Fi Network. They taped both episodes. I don't want to use the term mailed in, but it just, neither of these lived up to the high quality NXT programming that we've gotten for an extremely long period of time, but in particular, over the three or four weeks prior to the last two weeks. Just, these shows felt rough. Um, there wasn't much development to them. The main storyline with Karrion Cross and Samoa Joe, it's not bad, but at the same time, it's not really going anywhere. We already know what's going to happen. I think what happened two weeks ago with the three contracts was interesting. This week, they yelled at each other and just, that was it. You know, it's like, what are we doing here? Like, you're trying to promote a really big match and potential title change for a huge takeover event the Sunday after SummerSlam. I want a little bit more meat on the bone, so to speak, uh, you know, for that feud in particular. We haven't seen MSK in weeks. The women's tag team champions haven't wrestled. Um, you know, we're just, we finally got development on a women's championship storyline. My point is NXT, I've not been fond of the last two weeks and AEW over the last prior three weeks, I should say, delivering dynamite, no pun intended, big time, exciting episodes. But then they returned to Daly's place. And I got to tell you, the two hours we got on Wednesday, I didn't find all that entertaining. The main event was interesting. It's something that we'll talk about. But the totality of the four hours of wrestling programming I got from NXT and AEW combined, I can't remember a period where I was less enthusiastic about those products combined in a single week. So just so you know, I'm setting the tone for today's show. There's not going to be a lot of negatives because nothing really bad happened across either show, but it was just a lot of mediocre content. And Coming off of a week, another down raw that where we were really disappointed. Uh, that's three shows in a row to start the week where the Silver King isn't that happy. Hopefully SmackDown on Friday changes my tune. So as we always do on this Thursday show, let's start with NXT, where the main event was the love her or leave her match between Johnny Gargano and Dexter Loomis. Loomis was shown drawing while surrounded by his art early in the show. Gargano and Candice LeRae later said they had to end Index for good because They were just looking out for Indy Hartwell. By the way, Austin Theory was nowhere again to be found during this episode. Uh, Loomis wound up under the ring early in the match. Indy chased him there, and then the Garganos pulled both of them out. Gargano later yelled at Beth Phoenix for egging them on, and Loomis took advantage with a rope-assisted Falcon Arrow for a near fall. They traded punches, forearms, and super kicks. 
before Loomis and Hartwell locked eyes. He went to do her springboard elbow drop, but Gargano dodged it and locked in the Gargano escape. Loomis broke it by stroking Indy's cheek and then grabbing the rope, which was a kind of funny spot. Gargano kicked out of a roll-up, pushing Loomis into Hartwell. That knocked her off the ring apron. And then he capitalized with a Tope Suicida one final beat outside and then another one final beat inside the ring for the win. So he took two finishers in order to beat Dexter Loomis. Gargano hugged Indy afterward like a proud father. Uh, They were atop the ramp when all of a sudden Indy decides, you know what, I can't do this. She turns around, runs down, jumps onto Loomis in a Fez press, and just makes out with him on the mat. So this was, first of all, easily Loomis's best match in NXT, and no surprise it comes with Gargano involved. And the dynamics of this entire thing were just a ton of fun. I saw people, they didn't like the gimmick, they don't like the storyline. Look, if you don't like it, I'm not going to tell you that you should like it or anything like that. I think wrestling needs diversity in its entertainment, and this to me is a different diverse type of storyline. It's just something that you don't normally see. You have the familial dynamics of the way. Uh, You have the love uh, connection between Indy Hartwell and Dexter Loomis, a guy who doesn't speak and only expresses his love in drawings and looks. It's just all unique and very different. And I've enjoyed this entire feud and this entire storyline. I also have to give a lot of credit to commentary. They really sold it. And Beth Phoenix has done an incredible job throughout this entire feud. This match took what, as I said, was otherwise a lackluster show, and it raised the rent for the entire thing. I'm even willing to forget that the stipulation was basically ignored because I presume it's going to be addressed next week as either Love Conquers All or Loomis has to leave her alone, but that doesn't mean that Indy Hartwell has to leave Dexter Loomis alone. Either way, nothing on NXT was bad Tuesday, but this was easily the best thing on the show. I actually went with 3.5 stars and a B for the match with Gargano getting extra credit for his acting the entire time. So I was sports entertained by this. The show opened with Hit Row against Legato Del Fantasma. The tag teams had a match. Top Dollar got the hot tag, but was stopped with the steel chair from Santos Escobar and then thrown into the steel steps. After that, Swerve took a chair to the gut and had his grill ripped out by Escobar. B-Fab got a chair shot in and Hit Row ultimately stood tall after Swerve hit the JML driver on Raul Mendoza. Now, despite me loving both these groups, the fact that we couldn't get an actual finish in a 15 plus minute match, it was just so disappointing and total WWE style booking. They could have just hidden the chair shot from the referee and let Legato win the match. It's still heels cheating to win. There's no problem with that. It was just a frustrating start for me even though it did technically advance the storyline ahead of TakeOver 36. Next, we got Ridge Holland against Ikemen Jiro. Holland annihilated Jiro, pouncing him into the hockey glass, ripping off his jacket. He hit three overhead suplexes and a sit-down scoop slam for the win. This was a squash, yet it was longer than many SmackDown women's matches that we've gotten over the last few months. Holland looked extremely strong. Pete Dunne grabbed a mic afterward. He threatened Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher and said that those three, himself, Holland, and Oni Lorcan, are the three most dangerous men in NXT. I hope Dunn is at least the leader of whatever this is going to be. His promo was strong. It was all pretty good. But I do think they are setting the stage for Pete Dunn against Samoa Joe if he does end up beating Karrion Cross for the NXT title. Uh, Frankie Monet blamed Robert Stone's interference for their loss last week. She said they're used to losing and 
She gave them a take it or leave it offer to remake their group in her image, which Stone took. Not much of a development here. This is what we expected. Uh, The only strange thing is that Mandy Rose seems to be doing something very similar on the same show, and we didn't even see her this week. So I have no idea what's happening with Mandy Rose. And Frankie Monet leading Jesse Camia and Robert Stone, I don't really know what that does for her. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with all of that. We had Roderick Strong against Bobby Fish. Strong was in control for most of the match. He eventually hit a flying knee and his patented backbreaker for the win. It was a good 3.25 star match. But again, there was just nothing particularly notable here. It was good enough to ensure that Strong won something notable to become the number one contender for Kushida's Cruiserweight Championship. But now we have Kushida and Roderick Strong fighting for the Cruiserweight title. It just feels like both of them could be doing more and better things. Uh, LA Knight and Cameron Grimes faced the grizzled young veterans in a tag team match. Backstage, Grimes said he lived up to his word, but asked Knight if he had his back, and Knight promised him that he did as the Million Dollar Champion. Knight ended up leaving Grimes hanging on a tag early in the match. Grimes went on a rung, but the veterans hit Ticket to Mayhem for the easy two-on-one win. Ted DiBiase came out afterwards. He told Grimes he can still be a man of his word, but he has to get out of this situation with Knight, and then he helped him off backstage. This all worked. It was nice to see grizzled young veterans get a win after what feels like months. It's just that we were an hour into the show at this point, and everything already felt lackluster. And this didn't really get me that excited either. So it just was a little bit of a letdown, I guess, even though the grizzled young veterans, you know, got a win, an important win. And I presume they're going after MSK in the tag team titles, but time's running out, you know, tick tock, tick tock here. Now, there was a tremendous video package with Dakota Kai. She went over her motivations for turning on Raquel Gonzalez, beginning with recruiting her to NXT, then Io Shirai choosing to challenge Gonzalez over her. Uh, Kai said all she wanted was to be a champion also, but Gonzalez didn't even live up to that because she didn't care enough to help her win the tag team titles. That left her as a sidekick overlooked by Gonzalez. And that was a very similar storyline to Bailey and Sasha Banks, except Bailey and Sasha won the titles, but Bailey just didn't care enough to maintain their championship run, which pissed Sasha Banks off. So there were some parallels, but this was fantastic. And you could tell that there was actual long-term booking here, given all the camera shots and the facial expressions they got of Dakota Kai over the preceding months to sell the entire thing. It's a really simple storyline, but NXT executed it perfectly. And we'll have a great match to take over between these two. I have no doubt about it. And I legitimately don't know who's going to win. Whoever loses, I think gets called up but I just don't know who the winner is going to be. So I'm really, really interested in all of that. Uh, We have Joe Gacy against Trey Baxter in the NXT breakout tournament. This was the final first round match. There was a contrast of styles with Baxter hitting high flying moves. uh, Gacy delivering more brutal blows. Baxter delivered an insanely impressive 450 stomp off the top rope for the win. But none of these first round matches have been overly impressive or really interesting to this point. This tournament pales in comparison to the one for two years ago. Now, we'll see what happens in the semifinals and the finals, but it's not much of a breakout for me. And if one individual person wins, I hope that individual is pushed really strong because man, NXT from a talent perspective, it's not bad by any means. There's still a ton of talent on the brand from a male singles perspective, but it is nowhere near what it once was. Zoe Stark took Io Shirai out for Japanese food and said, she wants to be as good a partner to her as Kyrie Sane was. And you can see Io Shirai make a face when she said that. Shirai ordered in Japanese and Stark just decided to get the same thing. 
but it was like raw octopus and stuff like that that she just couldn't eat. Uh, Shirai hugged the waitress, but denied Stark a hug herself and stuck her with the bill. It was worth a smirk. It was a decently fun segment. The idea that Stark is like this um, uncultured white lady, maybe trying to, you know, get in with Io Shirai and all of her her Japanese culture. I think that's kind of funny and a little bit unique and different. I don't know that it's the best use of Io Shirai right now. And the fact that there's no other real women's tag teams outside of the Casey's for them to fight against, it doesn't give me much, you know, anticipation about the division as a whole. But for what it was, it was a fun segment. Uh, Karrion Cross ran out, stood on the announce table and screamed for Samoa Joe, who had to get held back by security. And he ended up choking one of them out in the middle of the ring as Cross ran away. That was literally the whole main event segment, and it was apparently retaped because the first time they did it, the crowd chanted Jeff Hardy at Cross. So this ended up being a whole bunch of nothing. And then lastly, we had a Walter versus Isla Dragunov 2 Prime Target special video package. Let me start by saying that Prime Target, they are incredible when they do these, but they were so much better when they were specials on the network that were given 20, 30, 40 minutes Now they're just branded video packages, which don't get me wrong, they're still great, but they're no longer special. A three-minute video package is not what Prime Target was intended to be when they first started doing it. So it was good enough to teach people a little bit about their rivalry, but it hardly scratched the surface of everything that led up to the first match between Walter and Dragunov, footage from the first match itself, giving a people reason to go back and watch it. It was a five-star match. I mean, it was one of the best WWE matches we've had in a long time. So I'm glad they featured it and I'm glad that they're you know previewing it a little bit. I'm thrilled that it's gonna be on the TakeOver 36 card, but I want more meat to chew into. I wanna sink my teeth into Walter against Isla Dragunov and this isn't it. This barely told people what they're about. Now I know Isla Dragunov is gonna be having his first NXT United States match next week. That's very cool. That's a nice touch. That, that's great. But again... I just want more than this. If you're going to put this match on a takeover, maybe they'll give it to us over the next couple of weeks. But for them to call this prime target and put it on this show, it was just a disappointment for me. So as I said, you heard my breakdown here. NXT, like it just happened. Their storylines advanced, but it felt like WWE and NXT just mailed it in because they were on sci-fi, because they were going up against the Olympics. It just kind of seemed like they said, hey, you know what? Let's just get through this. Our ratings are going to take a hit. Let's get back on the USA Network and deliver, you know, two or three really exciting shows before SummerSlam weekend. Now, AEW Dynamite one night later was really not that dissimilar. They gave us the homecoming show, a specially branded program, but it wasn't a special show at all. Uh, The main event, which is what we're going to talk about first, it was exciting. There was storytelling in it, but it was super short and the end of it was odd and really nothing else happened on the show that was particularly noteworthy, if we're being honest. And I don't even think there was a match on the show. I mean, maybe I'll get into it as I go through it, but I don't think there was a match on the show that I even graded. And for an AEW Dynamite, two hours with the quality of talent they have in their divisions, to not have a match that was three stars or better, um, I mean, that's a huge disappointment, right? So let's just get into it. We'll start with the main event, Malachi Black against Cody Rhodes. There were no video packages or anything to promote this, just you know, still graphics that they said, hey, this is coming up later. It's coming up later. It's coming up in the main event. Black had a really interesting entrance where he crawled into a tunnel as a shadow. And then it was pitch black besides a big drop light. 
He had a skull mask with horns on it. It was a very strong, cool, metal-like presentation, and it's perfect for his new character. They did a really good job making the entrance work for him. But if we're going to compare apples to apples, I did prefer his NXT entrance and music. I thought it was better. I thought he looked better, but maybe that's just more my taste. This is certainly a darker uh, gimmick that is probably a closer representation of what he wants to do. So that's fine. Uh, Black lightly kicked Cody while he was climbing the ropes, and Cody took one of the fakest dives I can remember into a timekeeper's table. It was the equivalent of when someone is on the side of Hell in a Cell, and they like bang their head into it, and then they jump off the cell and fly way further than they actually should. Normally, you would just crumple down. But like Cody flew probably 12 feet into the timekeeper's table. It was just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Cody re-entered the ring. He immediately ate a black mass that seemed to miss. I think it did miss him. And then Black put one foot on Cody's chest for the one, two, three in about four or five minutes. Black then just casually walked out through the tunnel. Cody struggled to get to his feet and he cut a short promo about his career to this point. He said, AEW is no longer an alternative. It's competition, which didn't get a big cheer. I, you know, normally when AEW tries to punch in those lines, everyone buys into it, the crowd. They didn't really do that here. Um, He also said he's carried the AEW banner for three years and he started unzipping his boots. He left, took one off and left it in the ring. He was crying, saluting the crowd, but he didn't say he was retiring, didn't say anything like that. When all of a sudden Black attacks him from behind with a crutch to end the show. So let's start with Black. I loved the debut for him. I said the last couple of weeks that Cody needed to put Black over in a strong way and that's what he did. Now, I didn't expect it to be as close to the Brody Lee squash as it ended up being, but it worked to make him look completely dominant. As far as the end of the show, man, it was a mess. First of all, the whole thing dragged. Then, does anyone really believe Cody is retiring from wrestling at age 36 while being EVP of his own company? Like, what's the result here? Either a retirement match at All Out that he wins, which would be a terrible decision because you don't want him to beat Black, Or maybe Ric Flair comes in to motivate him and revitalize his career with Arn Anderson, which is unnecessary, but I guess it would be good. It would get a pop. I presume he's going to take time off to do the Go Big Show again and or his reality show. But I don't know that you need to do a fake retirement angle just to have him step away for a couple of weeks. They did the exact same thing with Brody Lee in the TNT title squash, only for Cody to jump right back in and win. So we can't fully judge what this is until we see the rest of the booking, but I'm not really sure what this accomplished. Cody's booking and promo work over the last couple of months has been extremely odd. And I mean, look, they put over Anthony Agogo. They tried to make him into something only for him to lose the match and then not be seen again. I presume he's over in England uh, due to COVID-19 isn't traveling back and forth. But like, what are they doing with Cody? I don't get it. The guy can just go away, do the show without there being a storyline. Uh, And then lastly here, I had a DM slide. I still don't have that DM sound on the soundboard, but at Chef Aaron 26, he wrote in, could Malachi Black become AEW's version of The Undertaker? I mean, it's a fair question because he could have become WWE's version of The Undertaker. It was was there for him. Uh, Could he do that for AEW? Sure. But I think you need to understand The Undertaker did this for decades and he had a WrestleMania streak. And if they're going to do anything like that with Black, then he's going to be the undisputed AEW champion who never loses that title. 
So probably not, right? Like I don't think AEW is going to want a version of The Undertaker in that regard, but is he capable of doing it? He's absolutely capable of it. And I thought the same thing in WWE, which is one of the reasons I was so floored and shocked by the fact that he was released. The other big topic on the show was the elite and Hangman Adam Page. Page apologized to Dark Order for losing last week. And he said, they need to go their separate ways for everyone's best interest. Obviously, Dark Order didn't really want to do that, but ultimately accepted it. Uh, Hangman was later confronted in the ring by the elite with Kenny Omega, assuming he wanted to rejoin them before calling him a loser and failure. Hangman slapped Omega, but got beat down with the magic killer. Dark Order then tried to make the save, but Evil Uno and Stu Grayson stopped them because they wanted to honor Paige's wishes. The Young Bucks hit him with three BTE triggers. Frankie Kazarian made the save, but got his ass kicked. And Omega gave Paige a belt shot to the head to kind of end the whole thing. Paige being with Dark Order for a bit did make sense based on storyline, but a separation is definitely best for both of them long-term, really Paige more than anyone else. This seemed like a way to write Paige off for a short period of time. I don't think there's any way that you give him a match of any kind at All Out, unless maybe he teams with Kazarian to go up against the Young Bucks for the tag team titles. And whether that happens at All Out or maybe a little bit down the line while he still waits for Omega, that is something that could be a little bit interesting. But I am curious to see where it all goes. I'm glad they delayed the Omega page match. I know a lot of people are up in arms about that. But remember, on this podcast, I said that it felt like it was a long-term storyline that they were building to. Fans were coming back and all of a sudden they just said, you know what, let's rush it and give everyone a great main event for All Out. But they just, they they turned up the dial from like 20% to 90% in one week. And it just, to me, felt completely rushed. So I like that it was almost a false start and then they're going to start building to it. I don't know when, you know, maybe in a couple of months, but I don't know that they can go much longer with it. I would say that by early 2022, Page needs to have beaten Omega and become the new AEW world champion. Uh, the show opened with Chris Jericho against Juventud Guerrero. This, again, was the first match. The labor of Jericho was that he had to use a top rope move to win. It was strange that AEW didn't showcase Juvie's career at all before the match. Now, I know WWE owns a lot of the WCW footage, but the guy's wrestled elsewhere. He's wrestled in Mexico. Like, I'm sure you could find some footage to say, hey, look, this is Juvie. Not everyone who watches the show is an old fan who watched WCW. Like a lot of people don't know who this guy is. I said last week, I wondered if Juvie was rusty and you could see it all match long. Jericho failed with a crossbody and an ax handle. Aubrey Edwards did a good job reminding him he needed a top rope move to win. Jericho tried to tear apart Juvie's mask, which made absolutely zero sense considering Jericho is the face. Fans chanted this is awesome for no reason because it was not awesome. Jericho kicked out of the Juvie driver, hit a Judas effect, and then won with a flying, spinning Judas effect. The finishing move by Jericho was dope as hell. The rest was shit, if we're just being honest with ourselves. It was not a good match, but the finish was awesome. I got to give them credit for that. Uh, after the match, Wardlow knocked out Juvie and Jericho with the casualty of war, as MJF announced that Wardlow would be Jericho's next opponent for his fourth labor, with MJF as the referee or enforcer they didn't clarify. I think that Wardlow is a great fourth labor, but you would think that he'd want that in a steel cage match, such as they did with Cody Rhodes or something, because MJF being an enforcer, I don't know what that's really going to accomplish. If he is the referee, I presume he gets knocked out at some point and Jericho uses his arm 
to count one, two, three or something like that. A little bit gimmicky, but I'm sure there's a storyline reason we're going this way. Ultimately, though, Jericho and Wardlow should be a great match. I'm a huge Wardlow fan. We had John Moxley, Eddie Kingston, and Darby Allen against Danny Garcia and 2.0 in a six-man tag team match. The former Ever Rise did get a chance to cut a promo, taped one, but it was maybe their worst promo that I've ever heard. So they were not featured well. Mox destroyed someone over the barricade, got a hot tag, hit a paradigm shift, and tagged Darby Allen in for the coffin drop and the win. Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone basically wet themselves on the mic, putting over how great the wrestling is in AEW based on this match. It was like a formulaic, typical six-man tag team match. It was entertaining, but it was nothing special. There's so many other matches where you can put over the great wrestling in AEW. This was not one of them. Uh, Brian Cage and Team Taz cut promos against each other in one video package. It didn't advance the storyline at all. AEW just may want to consider not forcing everyone into every show every week. It's okay to go one week without Team Taz being represented on the program. It's okay to not have Miro cut a promo one week, a taped promo when he's not wrestling. When Rampage starts, hopefully they space everything out and cut down on it more. The Elite were playing basketball uh, backstage. Doc Gallows had a Ric Flair robe on. The funniest part was Brandon Cutler trying to speak but getting pushed out of the circle. The idea was that there's no one left to challenge anyone in the faction, which is obviously absurd given the size of AEW's roster. But maybe that's just teasing people coming in as challengers, considering Kenny Omega was wearing a Cookie Monster shirt as a reference to CM, as in CM Punk. Uh, But that would just go against everything AEW stands for with wins, losses, and rankings supposedly mattering. Although a Daniel Bryan or a CM Punk, yes, those are exceptions. Uh, Christian Cage fought the Blade in a singles match. Christian flew off the top rope outside. Blade distracted the referee and grabbed the brass knuckles, but Christian caught him with a spear for the win. As a pure wrestling match, this was well done. It was probably the best match of the show, but to be honest, I just didn't care about it at all. They did nothing to get me invested in it. Christian was later determined to be the new number one contender at 6-0, and he said he came to AEW to win championships and be elite. It sure seems like it's going to be Omega versus Christian at All Out for the title, which is totally not for me as the main event of one of the top two shows of the year, even if there maybe is going to be a big debut if CM Punk shows up. I'm not saying the match wouldn't be good. I just really do not care about Christian at all. I never have, and I probably never will. And Christian against Omega, it'll probably be a good match, a four-star match, something like that. But it is not going to get me excited for All Out itself. Uh, Santana and Ortiz and Dax Harwood cut dueling promos in one package, saying their feud is far from over after Cash Wheeler was bleeding profusely from his arm during their last match. That's good because the match... Last week, I think it was, was a disappointment. And these are two awesome teams that can definitely put on a better match. Britt Baker started cutting a promo when Red Velvet interrupted and said she wanted a piece of her. Velvet put over her clean record and Baker gave her a title match at the AEW Rampage debut in Pittsburgh. That's next Friday. Baker hit a stomp and used a crutch on Velvet afterward. The whole thing was rough and clunky, but it's a good way to get Baker a featured match on a show in front of her hometown crowd and obviously she'll win that, so that's good. The Lucha Bros blamed Andrade El Idolo for canceling Pac's travel. Chavo Guerrero again asked if they wanted all the luxuries of working with Andrade, and they said no. It is the same thing every week with this. Chavo later told Andrade that Fuego de Sol will work for them. Andrade immediately attacked him, and Chavo demanded that he shine Andrade's shoes. The whole attack and stuff basically made no sense, At this point, I think we're two months into Andrade and AEW, I see zero difference 
between Andrade here and Andrade in WWE. He had one okay match against Matt Slidell. Andrade had matches just as good, if not better than that, in WWE. Now, when he left WWE, he was not being used. So I guess, yes, him being on weekly TV is an improvement, but he's not doing anything. His character is basically the same thing. Did they tweak his look a little bit? Sure, but they probably could have done that in WWE. Now, okay, he's feuding, or seems to be feuding, with Penta, El Zero M, Ray Phoenix, and Pac, all three of whom in matches with Andrade are going to be incredible if they happen. But outside of really good wrestling, which I'm not saying is nothing, is he really being treated better, quote unquote, in AEW than he was in WWE? To me, at this point, the answer is no. And I felt the same way for Miro for nine months, and eventually they figured something out. Maybe they figure something out with Andrade. But to me, this is an indication that, hey, not that they shouldn't have signed him. Of course, you sign Andrade if he's a free agent. But it's an indication, hey, maybe this roster is too big. Even when they add Rampage and they have three hours, maybe they are a little bit over their heads in terms of the amount of talent on this show. So that will be interesting to see. Uh, Dan Lambert cut a promo saying he will confront Lance Archer next week and bring backup with him. It's been smart for AEW, in my opinion, to lean into some light UFC appearances. Lambert did run a stable of MMA fighters in Impact once before, so theoretically he could do it again. I believe it was successful when he did it over there. I'm not sure why all of this is necessary though in AEW, unless we get a UFC fighter with some name against Archer at All Out. But unless we're doing something like that, I don't know what the end goal is here other than maybe just to get a little bit of crossover appeal. We had a TNT title match, Miro against Lee Johnson. Miro beat his ass, but Johnson went on a run with a Tope cannonball, then a flying crossbody for a one count and a frog splash for a two count. Miro ultimately hit a thrust kick and won with game over, which is the new name for the accolade. This match was exactly what it needed to be, but it perhaps went a few minutes too long for my liking, given how Miro should look dominant against guys like Lee Johnson. He doesn't need to go... 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 minutes with Lee Johnson. He should be doing that with other mid-carders who are maybe greater threats to actually take his title. But Miro should be booked more dominant than he was here. We had Layla Hirsch against the Bunny in an NWA Women's Championship Eliminator match. Same spot as usual for this on the show. The NWA champion Camille was at ringside. Hirsch missed an Escalera moonsault. The Bunny hit a Death Valley driver for a near fall. Hirsch finally won with an armbar. It was a nothing match. Camille stood face to chest. Uh, with Hirsch after the match. Hirsch is legit, by the way, for real. I love her. She's great. Between Hirsch, Serena Deeb, and Thunder Rosa, there is some legitimate in-ring talent in this women's division. And if you believe rumors that they may sign Ruby Riot, who now goes by uh, Ruby Soho, that's going to be a great addition for AEW as well. But as I say every time that I try to praise the women, nothing is going to matter if they get one eight-minute match with a double commercial, and that's all you see of them. Even if you give them one additional match on Rampage, that is not enough to build a women's division. And early in the show, I literally asked out loud on Twitter where the hell Jade Cargill has been. And we finally got to see the exact same promo as we got before to promote a dark match on Elevation. Okay, great. I'm so glad that you're capitalizing on Jade Cargill. And that was really the entire show. Lastly here, AEW announced the Rampage broadcast team will be Taz, Excalibur, Chris Jericho, and Mark Henry. Now, I like this being different, with Excalibur presumably serving 
as either the play-by-play man or just the guy who leads the action. But holy shit, four is a crowd. Taz and Chris Jericho together seems totally unnecessary. That's a lot of jabbering that's going to go on between the two. If it was me, I would go with just Excalibur and Taz. And then I'd take the third chair and I would rotate someone different in every week. Mark Henry one week, Chris Jericho another week. Big Show can come in. Just have someone different in that chair. Maybe you have Don Callis if you do an elite angle. That's how I would do the commentary team. And I would not be surprised if they eventually go to that down the line. But I have no idea what Mark Henry is going to add to it. I like him so much though. So I'm certainly willing to give him a chance. It also sounded like by the way they announced it, Excalibur may not be on Dynamite any longer. And if that's the case, that would be a terrible decision without without a replacement. Now, as far as how we will cover Rampage on this podcast, it's going to be really, really difficult. I don't want to wait six days to talk about it. But we also can't really put it on the WWE show Tuesday because it's long enough as it is with Raw and SmackDown. So barring breaking news situations, we're probably going to have to save Rampage for this weekly Thursday episode and just have to live with it for now. But if there is a reason, if there's another show that gets added to the WWE, AEW rotation, if Impact starts getting really exciting or I don't know, maybe there's a third show weekly that we can add in. But right now we will talk about Rampage along with Dynamite, along with NXT on our Thursday show. Speaking of Thursday shows, this one is officially in the books. We've broken down everything that happened in NXT and AEW. I'm excited next week for AEW to get back out on the road, for NXT to be back live on the USA Network. That should improve both shows. I just think this happened to be a very strange down week for both programs. It will pick up. Normally, we praise NXT and AEW on this podcast. Coming up next year on Getting Over, of course, will be our WWE episode on Tuesday where we will break down everything that happens on Raw and SmackDown, hopefully a little bit more SmackDown than Raw because that has clearly been the better program. And yeah, we're still on the road to SummerSlam. We will have a bunch of special episodes as we get closer to that and as we get closer to episode number 200, which is just a couple of weeks away. But that's it for today. So a reminder, of course, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, as always, it's all about the five. Please drop those five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts for us. And do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That's it for today. The Silver King is going to bid you adieu and leave you with three final words. Bye for now.